0: Welcome to Word New Podcast. I'm um, going to do a video session this evening and uh, this will be also on the podcast as well, but I wanted to uh, use this opportunity to uh, turn a video out and um, reason being is that we've got a YouTube clip to watch today. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at um, a particular view of God's sovereignty. We're going to be looking at uh, Andrew Womack, who is the head of Caris Bible College uh, and also has an international itinerary ministry. We're going to be looking at his view on the sovereignty of God. And so I felt it probably would be best to do a video and include um, a video caption of him, a little video um, box of, of Andrew Womack, um, so that we can watch it and that so we're not Taking small nuggets of what he says and taking it out of context because I think it's really helpful for us as Christians, and especially those of us wanting to improve our apologetics, to learn to put people's views in their proper context so that we can evaluate them properly and in their right setting. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to watch Andrew Womack's views on the sovereignty of God. Now, I've gotten myself into a bit of trouble before for doing this um, because I I think that there is a general kind of, there's a fine line to tread, number one. There's a fine line to tread whenever we are um, wanting to evaluate what another Christian or professed Christian is saying. Uh, There's a fine line to walk because as Christians we need to make sure that we're not doing this out of a need to make ourselves look great. Um, we're not, we also don't want to be doing this out of a place of bitterness and needing to bring others down. That's a given, you know. As Christians, we're not we're not to do that. We're to build one another up um, in love. And so, it's really important that whenever we are appraising the words of another teacher, that we're not doing so from a place of bitterness. Uh, a place of wanting to exalt ourselves, or anything like that. And so often I think when I will appraise and evaluate the teaching of certain individuals, some can misunderstand and see that as a personal attack. Somebody might think that I'm being vindictive or mean or taking shots at leaders. That's not the case. (laughs) I have no need to lift myself up on any pedestal at all. Uh, It's not about me. I'm nobody, and uh, people don't need to hear the views of Graham Phillips. However, as a Christian and as a Christian minister, my job is to weigh the words of those professing to be Christian teachers against the Bible. And in order to do that, we have to actually hear those teachers in their context and weigh that against the word of God to see if what they're saying stacks up. Now, that is the job of every Christian minister. And that's pretty clear from Paul's writings to uh, Timothy, also to Titus, that we ought to be engaging in this kind of ministry and being discerning. Uh, we, we read that in 1 John, don't we? You know, Test the spirits. Um, so... That's what we have to do. That's why we do this. It's not to try and take pot shots. It's not to try and be mean or vindictive. It's simply that we have a duty and responsibility to weigh the words of people claiming to be from God against God's actual word and see if there's any discrepancy. If not, praise the Lord. But if there is, then we need to warn against that particular teacher in order that we wouldn't fall into the same pitfalls. And Andrew Womack is certainly a very influential character. His Karis Bible College is literally just down the road from here. And I know um, many lovely people who've been along to his Bible College and really enjoy his teaching. And so my intention is not to upset or to offend any of those individuals, but simply to contrast what Womack teaches about the sovereignty of God and see if it stacks up, see if it stacks up against the Word of God. So let's... Take a look, and I will I will make comment as and when uh, I feel to do so.
1: First thing I want to deal with tonight, and if uh, you're new to me, have mercy on me, amen? Because <laughs> I'm going to offend you right off the bat.
0: You know, as soon as somebody says that, as soon as someone says, be careful, I- I'm about to offend you right off the bat, To be honest, I always just think, right, guard up. Got to get my guard up because it's grandstanding. It's showmanship. And to be honest, I know it because I used to do it. Certainly, I have played to the crowd. I have said things for effect, which I repent of. And it takes, sometimes you can see it. Once you've done it enough times, you can see it in somebody else. When they're grandstanding, when they're playing to the crowd, when they're trying to elicit a response, an emotional response or a psychological response, um, you can see it. And and as soon as I see that starting to happen these days, I've got my guard up. Let's, Let's continue watching.
1: But in my estimation... The worst doctrine that is prevalent in the body of Christ today and that just completely voids all of these things about God being a good God is the wrong teaching on the sovereignty of God. That God controls everything. That God just supernaturally controls it. That nothing can happen without either God initiating it or allowing, giving permission to the devil and allowing the devil to do it.
0: And... That's actually a pretty good. I just scrubbed the video too far one way there, but that's actually a pretty good definition of sovereignty. Either God willing it or God allowing an event to happen. Whether it's the devil or not is um, is not known to us. But that's actually not a bad definition. But we'll see what begins to happen here. Um, we'll, we'll begin to see some of the changes uh, that Womack brings in, or the um, the way that his initial representation of biblical sovereignty begins to change, it begins to get flattened out. So let's let's watch on.
1: Allowing the devil to do it, and if you believe that, then you know what this does. This ascribes all of the terrible things that are happening to God. This makes God ultimately responsible for it. That means that the war. That means that all of the rape, the murder, the divorce, the heartache, the problems that go on between people, the death, and all of these things are God. And you know what? If you are looking at this world system and all of the terrible things that are happening, and if you attribute all of this evil and all of this corruption and all of this bad to God, then it's impossible for you to believe that God's really a good God.
0: Right, we we've got to we've got to touch base on this right now because did you see what happened? What's happening is there's a flattening out of biblical revelation happening. Um, there is a, a condensation of biblical revelation concerning God's sovereignty, and Womack has flattened it out to mean that if everything that happens is within the counsel of God, or within the decrees of God, as the Westminster Confession of Faith calls it, within his sovereign will, right? If everything that happens is within that, then God caused it. Then God is responsible for it. Did you see that? Now, that's actually not the way the Bible presents it. It's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. And this is where he begins to straw man the biblical presentation of God's sovereignty, because he flattens it out. And I've seen this happen time and time again. I used to do this too, before I became aware of the the wonderful revelation of God's sovereignty in scripture. Well, if God wills everything or everything's within his will, then he is responsible for it all. He's doing it all. He's causing it all. And so therefore, you know, if sin happens, it's God. It's not that individual. If sickness happens, then God sent it. It's nothing to do with the devil, nothing to do with sin. Um, And there's a flattening out of that revelation. So I'm going to jump quickly with you and show you what I mean. So if, if you come with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. God is prophesying through Isaiah about sending Assyria to Judge his people Israel. And let's just take a look for a moment th- how this is narrated, how, is, how this is described. So here we go. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Did you catch that? So, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So, Assyria is the rod. God is holding the rod. It's his anger, but it's them. That he is utilizing to display his anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So, God is saying that the weapons this army of Assyrians carry in order to inflict damage upon his own people, that's his fury. Is it his hand holding the weapon? No. Is it his physical staff? No, it's not. It's theirs. But the fury belongs to God. Now listen to this. Against a godless nation I send him, against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and in his heart does not think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings, Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? Now, listen to this. What's being said here is, but he does not so intend. So what God is saying is simply this. I am using Assyria Assyria is the rod in my hand, which I am going to beat on my, the people of my wrath with. I'm sending Assyria. Assyria has been sent by me and is going to accomplish my purposes. Equally, the king of Assyria doesn't recognize that. He's not thinking, I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish God's will. I am going to unleash God's fury upon the people of his wrath. The king of Assyria is not thinking that. The king of Assyria has wicked desires. His desire is to oppress these people, to subject them under his rule, to do to them as he's done to every other nation on his bloodshed path all the way from Assyria. So what we have here is two wills. We have the will of God, which is to to reveal his wrath against his people for their sins. That's the one will. Then we have the creaturely will, the king of Assyria, which is to suppress these people. He knows nothing of God. He doesn't respect God. He hates God, but he's actually accomplishing God's will. He doesn't realize it. So we have two wills and one set of events. Let's continue. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So wait a minute. So the king of Assyria is going to have completed the work that God intended, but God's actually going to punish him for doing what God had actually sovereignly decreed that he would do. How is that fair? Well, let's listen. For he says, that is the king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom I have done for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, a wealth of my peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And the Lord says, shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. So what we have here is then the Lord punishing the Assyrian king and the army of the Assyrians because the desire that they had in their hearts was sinful, even though what they actually did was the sovereign will of God. They they had other reasons for performing that particular action other than those of the Lord's, and so therefore it was sin and it was judged by the Lord. So what we have here is human freedom. We have human freedom in the sense that the, the king of Assyria was not co-opted by God in order to perform these actions. Uh, no oracle showed up, no prophet showed up and said, "'Thus says the Lord, you shall do that, such and such to Jerusalem.'" he decided in his own heart to perform these actions. There was a freedom of the will. However, this individual who freely chose uh, in his own heart uh, to go and sack Jerusalem or attack Jerusalem um, was accomplishing the sovereign decrees of God without realizing it. And so when we flatten the revelation of God's sovereignty out and say, well, you know, the, the Assyrians came and they killed and they plundered and they raped, so, God did it. That's, that's not a biblical conclusion to reach because God didn't do it. These sinful individuals did it and they are punished for those sins. God ordained it, yes, and God is justified in ordaining whatever He wills because He is perfect, He is holy, and He's the only one who is ultimately free to make those decisions. And so, God accomplished what He needed to get accomplished through sinners. And even though these sinners were choosing to do whatever was in their heart to do, they were free to choose those things, God was the one who accomplished his purposes and will. So we can't afford to flatten that out and make that into, well, either either God did this and it was God's hand that accomplished all these things and sacked Jerusalem and and killed all these Israelites. Or it was the will of man. What we actually see is both. We see the will of God and the will of man. We see this again in in Genesis 50, don't we, with um, Joseph and his brothers. We saw that famous line, um, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It doesn't say what you meant for evil, God used for good. It says God meant it for good. So that him being thrown into a pit, you know, him being sold into slavery, him being accused of trying to molest Potiphar's wife, him being thrown in jail. God meant that. And that's what's being said by Joseph there. God meant all that, but he meant it for good, that his purposes might be accomplished, that uh, people would not die in the famine, that he would save for himself a people and move them down into Egypt in those days uh, so that he would ultimately be able to break them free. So God is accomplishing purposes. Sometimes those purposes... Bring pain, but always, you know, these purposes are utilizing the so well the the free choices, if if you will, of mankind. This is a nuanced and complex revelation of God's sovereignty. If we look to Acts in the New Testament, if we're thinking, well, that's all well and good, but but what about the New Testament? Um, we find this in in the New Testament in the book of Acts concerning the most important events of history, the crucifixion and and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Verse 29 of chapter 2. Oh no, sorry, verse 22, rather, of chapter 2. Men of Israel, says Peter, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the handing up of Jesus was God's definite plan. Who handed Jesus up? Judas did. Judas did that. So again, we're seeing the will of man and the will of God two separate wills but one set of events and God is accomplishing his purposes through all of them God is not thwarted here and then we have again in uh, Acts chapter 4 let me just find this here we go chapter 4 verse 27 for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus who you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, we have these individuals, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Gentiles, not people who were going to be sort of uh, holding out to do the will of God. These are Gentiles. Um, They did not have time to read the prophets. Uh, So we we have these individuals um, gathering together against Jesus, the holy servant of God. But they are doing whatever God's hand and plan is predestined to take place. Now, what did take place was the greatest sin of all time. It was the crucifixion of the spotless Lamb of God. The Son of God was crucified by sinners who he breathed into existence. That's the greatest sin of all time. Yet the Bible says that it was God's plan his predetermined plan for that to take place. So does God ordain sin? Yes. Does God ordain suffering? Absolutely. Is it all part of his ultimate purpose and plan to redeem for himself a people and glorify Jesus and glorify himself? You bet it is. But this is the scriptural revelation of God's sovereignty and man's freedom. It's not easy, and you can't flatten it down into nice sound bites as Womack is trying to do here. Let's, let's watch on.
1: Because there's a lot of bad things happening. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. And I know some of you are thinking, but God is sovereign. You know, I just happened to write down the dictionary definition of sovereign. Let me read this to you. Here's what the dictionary says. If you use it as a noun, the word sovereign means chief of state in a monarchy. When you use it as an adjective, it's talking about paramount or supreme. I believe that God is paramount and supreme. He's the top of the food chain. There is absolutely nobody who gives God orders or makes God do anything. He is highest in rank, order, and authority. Second definition is having supreme rank or power, I believe that that's God. I believe that God is almighty. As a matter of fact, one of the bones of contention that I... I'm not even going to tell you which translation this is because you'll think I'm against it. But there is a modern translation, one of the most popular ones, that took the term Almighty God that was in the King James and substituted Sovereign Lord over 3,000 times in the Bible. And that's the translation that has basically popularized this term sovereignty. It didn't exist before that translation came out. Not in the not in the degree, and and uh, didn't have the influence that it does now. And they just substituted sovereign Lord for Lord God Almighty.
0: So he's talking here about the New International Version, and um, just to kind of jump back a little bit into what he was saying before. He jumps to the dictionary to get his definition of sovereignty. Now, there's nothing wrong in doing that. That's uh, it can be a useful thing to do for sure. But the problem is, is that our definition of God's sovereignty and certainly the definition of God's sovereignty that he is railing against here didn't come from a dictionary. You know, it came from the scriptures and it came from the whole of the scriptures, totus scriptura. It doesn't come from a, a particular verse. It's the full revelation of God's sovereignty in Scripture as we've we've seen a tiny glimpse of just there. So while there can be some merit in doing a word study, um, we can't we can't completely derive our understanding of the nature of God from a word in a dictionary. It has to come from Scripture, right? And this is one of my concerns with this definition that he's bringing. Secondly. This thing he mentions about the NIV, which is that, you know, it's replaced Almighty with Sovereign, and that before that, you just Sovereignty just kind of wasn't really a thing. What? <laughs> like, number one, when was the NIV first out, right? And then once you think of that, you, you've got your 1984 version. Let, let's just roll back the clock a little bit. Who do we have no less than, I don't know, 100 years before that? Charles Spurgeon his works, it is chock-a-block, packed full of sovereign, 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 sovereign. It's all about the sovereignty of God. You go back even further, you go to the Puritans, go to Jonathan Edwards, you go to the Reformers, you go to these confessions of faith. All replete with mentions of God's sovereignty. Why? Not because they read that word in the Bible and gone, oh, I like the sound of that. Where's a dictionary? Let me check that up. No, because they had had witness from the full revelation of the scriptures of the nature of God and his interaction with his creatures in that God's will governs all that comes to pass. So this is one of my concerns, really. And this is a similar argument that you'll actually find Muslims using against the Trinity, where they'll say, well, show me the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not there, is it? So therefore, you're making this doctrine up. We don't need the word Trinity. In order to base our doctrine off of that, we we have the rest of the witness of Scripture, and this is what I'm saying about you know needing to find the word and making that a thing. It's just a bad argument. Let's 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 carry on watching.
1: I'm not against sovereign. sovereign. If you use it as paramount or supreme, having supreme rank or power, or the third definition is independent, like a sovereign state or. The United States is sovereign. That means we are independent of Great Britain. We broke away and we are self-determining. That's great. God is independent. Nobody tells him what to do. And the next definition is excellent. It comes from a Latin word that means super, above. God is super. God is above. God is highest in rank, order, and authority. God is supreme. God is excellent. If you want to use the word sovereign the way the dictionary talks about it, man, God is sovereign. But I reject sovereign the way that religion talks about it because what they mean is that God sovereignly controls everything. That nothing happens. He is sovereign. He's got his hand in everything. And therefore, anything that happens, God is the doer of it. He either initiates it or Satan has to come and get permission from him to do it. That is not what the word of God teaches. And I'm going to show you some scriptures on that tonight. But again, if you believe that We
0: we have again, we have this flattening out. Like if it's part of God's will, then He did it. Right? that's not what scripture says that there's room here in scripture and we find in the Westminster confession of faith for second and third causes like if I want to write something in ink right now I'm writing it and I say I I mean me Graham Phillips my soul but actually what's actually writing on the page is the ballpoint pen and the ink so that there's it's the ink that's making the writing, but it's it's me. So I'm I'm not doing a great job of this, but you can see how in any situation, it, it would be wrong to simply narrow everything down to one cause. And so we shouldn't do that with God's sovereignty either, and just say, well, you know, you're saying then that if God's sovereign, then then God sent COVID. No, no, that's, that's not how it works. God is sovereign in the sense that COVID and everything else that's happening right now the bible would absolutely say falls within his sovereign decree that doesn't mean to say that he necessarily sent it uh, it doesn't mean that he is actively causing it but it, uh, it it would seem to fall within the realm of orthodoxy to say that it's within his decrees it's within his sovereign will let's uh, let's continue listening to mr womack
1: I guarantee you, then you are going to see a perverted God. You aren't going to have a good image of God. Let me just use this. If every rotten thing that has ever happened in your family, the hurt, the words that have been said, the deaths, the divorces, if you could somehow or another guarantee that every problem you had in your family was a result of my intervention and my choices, I willed it for you, I guarantee you there's not a person in here that would like me, and rightfully so. There isn't a civilized nation on the face of the earth that would let me live if I was in charge of all of the mayhem and the destruction and the death and the pain and the suffering. And yet, right. this is what religion is presenting of God, that God controls everything.
0: You know it all- Again, we have a comparison here, which Mr. Womack is making, where he's saying, look, if I were to be involved in all these horrible things happening in the world, you know, things personal to you, if I was involved in those, intervening, causing them, then you wouldn't want to be around me. You wouldn't love me. You wouldn't think I was a good person. You know, again, we're thinking, but Mr. Womack, you're not God. (laughs) You're not God. You're Andrew Womack. You know, his ways are higher than our ways. He is ultimately governing all things. He has created us. He gives life to us. Uh, The word of uh, his voice sustains the cosmos, right? So it wouldn't be right to compare him with ourselves. It's not a, a proper contrast to make here. Let's watch on.
1: It always it gets, gets me when, me when people, die people die and you go to a funeral and they say, well, we know that God has a purpose. We, and they basically say their number must have been up. As if God's got a date circled on the calendar that that's your day and your, your t- number's up. The Bible makes it very clear that God gave you three score years and ten. For those of you that can't handle King James, that's 70 years. And he says you can even live to be 80 years if you're strong. It's not a maximum. It was a minimum that he gave everybody. If you die under 70 years, God didn't take you. Somehow or another, Satan killed you. It's sometimes
0: I've got, to, I've got to just stop on that one um, and just pull aside for a moment because he's quoting here from... Psalm 90. (laughs) So he says that uh, God gives us 70 years minimum, 70, 80 years if you're strong, minimum, and that's God's promise. And if you die before that, the devil killed you. Let's just take a look, shall we, at Psalm 90 and see if this contains what Mr. Womack is claiming, some kind of wonderful promise about the baseline for human life and that You know, nobody should be dying before this age, and God will sustain anybody uh, who, you know, as long as they're trusting in Him or whatever it is that Mr. Womack would like to suggest we ought to do to ensure we don't die before 70 or 80. Shall we see if we find that in Psalm 90? Here we go. Verse 7 For we are consumed in your anger, we are troubled in your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days have passed away in your wrath. We bring our years to an end as a sigh. The days of our years are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labour and sorrow. For it passes quickly and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, your wrath according to the fear? That is due you so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long have compassion on your servants? So far from being a promise of 70 years of life or 80 years of life, and this being something that God is kind of giving us as an unconditional promise that you know is just there for everybody so long as they believe and, and receive it. This is actually a passage about God's wrath and anger against the sinfulness of mankind. And, oh God, we have to live 70 or 80 years under this. Lord, help us to number our days and be mindful of you. So again, we can see what happens here. And time and time again, this is the case with Word, Faith, NAR teachers, is that they will prove text. They will rip a verse out of its context They'll flash it like a card trick in front of your eyes. And to the untrained eye, this is like magic, right? This guy knows what he's talking about. He's quoting Bible verses. He's pulling up quotes. He's not even looking at his Bible. He must be right, okay? It's sleight of hand. Whenever you hear something that you think, hmm, I'm not sure about that, go and read that verse in context, okay? Go and read it in context. And nine times out of 10, you'll find that that preacher, that word of faith, NAR preacher has taken that verse out of his context in order to serve his purpose, not the purpose of God's word but his own purposes. Equally, we've got in job 14 verse 5 to 7 this talks about the days of our lives and whether they are 70 or 80, whether God promises uh, indiscriminately 70 or 80 years for every man. It says this verse 5. A man's days are numbered. You know the number of his months. He cannot live longer than the time you have set. So, yes, everybody's days are numbered. God knows the day of your death, right? God knows the hour of your death. You will die, and God knows when you'll die. You don't, all right? So, you've got to carry on cracking on living, do doing whatever it is that God's called you to do. Wonderful, okay? But yes, your days are numbered, and when somebody dies, Yes, it was God's will and their timing. However horrific and sad that might be, that is the truth according to scripture. No, when somebody dies before the age of 70, the devil did not necessarily kill them. That's bananas. Let's carry on.
1: And it just blows my mind away that religion has taught people that nothing happens but what it's God's will. If you believe that, you believe in a god that is not the god of the bible that is not what the word of god teaches
0: now here this is this is serious because now he's effectively calling the anathema on anybody that that believes the scriptural witness of who god is that he is sovereign that he does walk or work all things according to the counsel of his will anybody who believes that he says does not believe in the god of the bible now, for me, I, I would suggest that if somebody holds a different view than I do on the sovereignty of God, that is something that we can discuss. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that that individual is believing in a different God. Certainly, I, I wouldn't wish to call the anathema on anybody for holding a different view of the sovereignty of God. Um, these sometimes can be issues of interpretation. They can be issues of um knowledge. There there can be issues of uh, spiritual maturity, you name it. I'm I'm not suggesting I have the perfect view of all things, but I'm trying to grow, right? And so we're all at different stages of understanding here. Now, to suggest that somebody who believes that God is in control of all things, whichever come to pass, is believing in a false God, is effectively to write off most of our Christian heritage and say, those guys, all false believers, uh, it, it's it's literally soaring the tree that upholds us away, uh, leaving us with no foundation. You know, so very dangerous. And I, and I think Mr. Wermack is uh, seriously in error there and, and needs to be held to account. Needs to offer repentance, um, and needs to change. So let's let's listen on those strong stuff.
1: Let me just show you a few verses on this. I know some of you are seething right now, but let me just show some scriptures. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now this is about as clear as I can make it. There's a there's a thousand things that we could go to, but this is so clear. If the Bible means anything to you, Think about this. It says, It is not God's will for a single person to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet Jesus said, There would be more people perish than there are people who would accept. He said the way is broad, and the gate is broad and wide that leads to destruction, but there's a narrow gate that leads to life everlasting. There are many that go in by the gate to destruction, few that enter in. That's Jesus' own words. And yet the scripture says it is not his will that any person perish. So how can you say that God's will automatically comes to pass? God is not willing for people to perish and yet they're perishing. Why? Because God's will does not always come to pass. God is not willing that a single person die, and yet there are multitudes of people
0: dying. Now, first, listening to that is is a classic kind of proof text, 2 Peter 3.8, to throw out there um, to anybody suggesting that um, God is sovereign, especially over salvation. And at first, listen, it sounds like a knockdown verse. Well, that's it. You know, God wills this, and it doesn't come to pass clearly. Scripture refutes that. Um, So there you have it. God's not in control, and he's certainly not in control of uh, the free choices of men or women as to whether they accept Christ. But this scripture itself, again, is thrown at us without any context. And context is king in interpreting scripture. So let's just have a look, shall we, in 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's the you? Who do we think the you is here? Well, the you clearly doesn't refer to all of mankind. It it, it refers to the people who Peter is writing to. It, It refers to that particular set of people right who are Christians okay so he's writing to these individuals and the you in verse 9 refers to them it doesn't refer to every single human being who has ever been born who will ever be born okay so let's just let's just clock that okay and let's carry on reading but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay? Now, what Mr. Womack is suggesting, and what many suggest, is that the any of verse 9 and the all of verse 9 are referring, in fact, to all of humanity and any of humanity, any and all of the Resp- relating to the whole of mankind. However, however, that would seem strange considering that Peter is already addressing a you in verse 9, which refers clearly just to the people that he's writing to. So it can also be read and understood, I think, in this way. He's not willing that any of you, of the people he's writing to, that would make very clear sense. He's not willing that any of you who I'm writing to should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. I think that's a very plausible reading of that passage. Equally, um, we have to understand uh, that we've got to understand that proof texting and throwing verses out like that without proper context it doesn't give people the best footing in trying to understand these issues and as as you can hear whenever he's saying the he's you know he's doing these mic drop statements everybody's like, oh come on yeah and uh it's easy to do you get swept up in the moment you know it sounds like he's crushing it but reality is that there's no context here people aren't given the opportunity to go there to the scriptures themselves and and be bereans about this and that's the danger in these churches especially where there's personalities like mr womack like other individuals who uh, are big personalities you know they're important they're seen as apostles prophets you know Uh, you dare not question the apostle you dare not question the prophet and their interpretation of these texts Um, when you know that's what we should be doing, brothers and sisters. We should be holding these individuals up accountable to Scripture, uh, and not allowing them to get away with this kind of blatant uh, proof texting. Let, let's watch on.
1: Let me just say that God's not willing for a single person to be sick, and yet there are multitudes of people sick. God is not willing for a single person to be poor today. He came. The Bible says, Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might be made rich. Jesus died to produce blessing and finances for you. It says in 3 John verse, um, chapter 1, verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. I could go on and on and on and on with Scriptures. God wants to bless you, and yet there...
0: And here we have it. Here we've got it. Here's the the prosperity gospel th- uh, thrust is coming through, and we've got you know Jesus's poverty was there for your blessing, for your financial blessing. And again, if we if if we actually will read the context of these uh, these passages that he references, let me just let me just read this to you. This is Second Corinthians eight. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, a test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So what's actually happening in Second Corinthians 8 is far from this being a kind of God just wants to bless you. He, his will is for you to be rich all the time. We don't find that. We actually find Paul praising a bunch of poverty-ridden believers who are giving over and above their means. They're being super generous. And he's actually making an example of them and saying, wow, isn't this amazing? Check out this generosity. God loves a cheerful giver, okay? And this idea that Jesus' poverty is supposed to secure us material wealth Well, if that's the case, why isn't Paul rebuking these Macedonians? Why isn't he making an example of them to the Corinthian believers and saying, Look at the lack of faith in these Macedonian believers. I can't believe it. I don't believe they've understood that Jesus died for their wealth. They haven't grasped that reality. Oh, if they only knew that God wanted to bless them. It's foolishness. Again, you're having the wool pulled over your eyes, no context given. Just words, just words with the odd Bible verse thrown in.
1: For people to believe that God is the one that willed you to be in this situation, it is a doctrine of man that just makes the word of God of none effect. It wipes out your belief that God is truly a good God. A good God is not the one that's causing sickness, disease, poverty, heartache, problems, God has perfect plans for you, but you have to cooperate. There is responsibility on the individual. And sure, God has brought.
0: Yes, there is responsibility on the individual. I'd agree with Mr. Wormack there. Yes, there is. But equally, um, this whole thing of. Unless unless you get shot of this idea that God is sovereign, you can't believe in God's goodness because you'll believe that he's. He's doing all these mean things, and how could a good God do all these these mean things? Here's the issue, is that unless you have rocked in your heart and your understanding the Romans 1 to Romans 3 understanding of mankind, you are going to feel like Mr. Womack, and you are going to think that there should be no pain in earth. There should be no sickness. And, you know, we should never encounter a problem. And if we do, then it's the devil. You know, you will have that understanding because you'll feel that you deserve those things. Whereas what the Bible clearly teaches is the fall. The fall was catastrophic. You know, the the fall didn't just make things difficult for us to get to God. It made them impossible, right? Sin isn't outside of us. It's not some kind of obstacle that we trip up over. Sin is in us. My body, right, is in sin. I have a body of sin, according to Paul. Even now, as a Christian, we still carry this physical body, which wages war against our spirit man. And so the idea that God owes us health and owes us sin. No, the goodness of God is not based in our experience, our subjective experience of life—the goodness of God—is rocked in who He is, in His nature, that He is God. That's what it, that He's good because He's God, and He—that's why, right? It's de- it's demonstrated to us, yes, through Jesus Christ, the fact that He sent a Savior for people who did not deserve a Savior. He gave His only Son. went to the cross and died for us and bore the Father's wrath upon his own body for us. That's the goodness of God. That's the goodness of God, not right there. Not whether you have a Range Rover or a BMW, and if you don't, oh, boo-hoo. I'm sorry, that's not the right metric for the goodness of God, and you'll get yourself into serious troubles thinking that it is. That's all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed this. I would... uh, I would warn you against this guy. I would warn you against this guy's teachings and um, certainly against the teachings of his Bible college. Uh, They are wantonly teaching anti-biblical doctrine. And um, I would suggest that if you hear teaching like this, just make sure you check the context of whatever verses they're throwing out there. Make sure you read up on it. Um, Go check out the passages in their entirety and do your work be a Berean fantastic thanks so much for tuning in guys god bless you if you want to check out more resources you can visit wordview.co.uk there's a bunch of blogs on on my website you can read and make use of Um, if you like the podcast always welcome to give a review and say you liked it give me a star rating so more people can tune in and until next time god bless and catch you soon